This is John Quinn, and this is Law Disrupted. And today we're going to be talking about some very important patent litigation relating to gene sequencing equipment, where my two guests today, my partners, David Bilsker and Margaret Shearer. Actually, Margaret, you're not yet a partner in our firm, are you? I am not. No, but I'm just looking into a, a crystal ball here, and I think the future looks good. They tried a case recently and won a $333 million verdict in Delaware against the market-leading gene sequencing company, a company called Illumina, which really dominates the market in the U.S. and perhaps the world. Are, are they? Would you would you say they're the globally? They have the same kind of market share, maybe the most important gene sequencer globally. I think by far, John, they've been investigated a couple of times by the FTC and the FTC has said something like between 70 and 80% market share. Okay. So that. this is a U.S. company, which is extraordinarily successful in some very important technology. And our client was BGI, a Chinese company. And some people might wonder, including Chinese clients and other Asian clients or foreign clients, can you come to the United States, litigate in the United States against a market-leading American company and get a fair shake? David and Margaret are here to tell you the answer to that is yes. And they brought back on behalf of this Chinese company against the market-leading gene sequencer Illumina a $333 million verdict in Delaware from a jury that Illumina has paid. They wrote the check, as I understand it. They did. The money is banked. Okay. Which is uh, kind of surprising. We think it's actually one of the largest satisfied patent judgments in history. The Federal Circuit usually chops down awards over $100 million, but they decided to pay pretty early on in the process rather than face possible enhancement. Well, don't don't let me forget to ask you before this podcast is over why you think they they did that. That's an interesting question of itself. But first, before we get into the the case, really cases, because I understand there were a couple of cases, maybe we should talk a little bit about uh, DNA sequencing technology and the importance of DNA sequencing these days. And Margaret, maybe you can give us some insight into that. Is is this important? And I assume the answer is yes. And if so, why? I mean, I think DNA sequencing is tremendously important um, over the last over 20 years or so. I, it's led us to identify and understand and develop treatments for diseases. In terms of fighting COVID, DNA sequencers have been a critical set of instruments to, to help fight and treat COVID. And, you know, just to give you a little bit of a flavor on that, so the guy who started our company, BGI, you know, did graduate school in the U.S., but went back to China. And, you know, not that many private companies have been all that successful in China. Um, he's actually one of these guys who's out there in the field. So like when COVID hit in Wuhan, he was wearing one of those white bunny suits and he was out there collecting samples and doing that. So, you know, that was like a little bit of a side story in the client too. I mean, he's an interesting CEO. So Illumina, how, how did Illumina get this market leading position? I mean, are, have there been other companies that tried to enter the field, the marketplace and failed? I mean, do they have some really key foundational patents that kind of created a, a competitive moat 
around their business? Or uh, what insight do you have as to how Illumina achieved this market power that it has? Illumina was out there in the world in the early 2000s doing stuff related to sequencing, but they weren't really doing sequencing. They bought a company that was from England and it just turned out that it turned out that the technology and the methodology they used ended up being the most efficient for quite a long time. And they do have a huge patent portfolio, which they they throw around like, you know, a big hammer. So they've they actually have enjoined a number of other companies and taken other companies out of the market um, using their patents. And who was our client? You tell us a little bit about the uh, person who I assume is the principal, but what, what's their background? So BGI stands for Beijing Genomics Institute. And it started kind of as part of the Human Genome Project where um, the Chinese government and private individuals in China invested money and started doing some of the sequencing that was part of the Human Genome Project, which 25 years ago, different institutions were sequencing small different parts of a single human genome. It took like 10 years to sequence the first human genome and billions of dollars. Now we do it in like a day and a half. So that's BGI, but we have another, we had another client as well, um, CGI, Complete Genomics Institute. They're based in San Jose, California, and they were started by a husband and wife, American Dream, came over from Serbia, started a number of companies in the sequencing field. At one point in 2013, BGI ended up buying CGI. So both of those were our clients and BGI is kind of the big one that got sued by Illumina when Illumina was a plaintiff and CGI was kind of the more of the plaintiff when we sued Illumina because CGI had the patents that this husband and wife had come up with. Can you give us the backstory? I mean, just I'd like to give people a flavor because uh, it's interesting how a, a client came to you. I mean, how, how does this client find its way to David Bilsker and Margaret Scherer? Um, so, you know, sometimes the water cooler um, is beneficial. I literally was walking down the hall uh, one day and we have an asso one associate who's born in China and, and I knew go, went to China on his own dime frequently. And I just said, hey, you know, there's this company called BGI some point they're going to get they're going to get really involved in a lot of litigation because they're becoming big and people are seeing them and he on his next trip to china he had a contact and he got in touch with them and we made the contact and we actually met them there were already the cases pending two cases in the us that were pending but they liked us and we took over one immediately and then we took over another one later on. But I mean, it literally was this associate, just a chance meeting in the hallway. How was it that you knew about this Chinese company? Just reading the trade magazines or the trade publications in the genomics field, you see their name come up a lot. Um, they are in fact, one of the largest biotech companies in the world, if not the largest. Um, they've been on 60 Minutes, for example. So I just saw their name a lot. and knew they were going to be a target of American companies. By the way, are you spending more time hanging around the water cooler, dropping names of uh, prominent Chinese companies just to see if somebody knows somebody? I wish, you know? I, I, wish I could say I, I am, but somehow right. our water cooler is not as full as it used to be in the office. And there's not as many people around. All right. So they contact us and they've already, they're already involved in the litigation when they contact us. What was the posture? And let me ask Margaret. 
What was the posture of the litigation when we're first contacted and we start to get involved? At this point, um, I wasn't actually in the, involved in the case from the very beginning like David was. So I, I may have to pass that along to him. But I know that when I jumped in, it was uh, quite daunting, actually, to go up against Illumina. Right. Yeah, so Illumina sued BGI all over Europe. I mean, like just, you know, cluster bomb everywhere. It's like 10, 12 different countries. And these are all patent cases, David. All patent cases all over Europe. Then BGI, CGI decided, well, we need to go on the offensive a little. They brought suit in Delaware. Illumina counterclaimed in Delaware. And then Illumina sued them separately in California. We took over the Delaware case right towards the beginning. And it was filed first. But what happened in California is Illumina moved for a preliminary injunction. And that case took on like rocket speed. And we weren't handling that case at first. And the, the firm that was handling both cases originally handled that. And they lost the preliminary injunction. And at that point, BGI is like, we need the real, the real power here. You guys need to take over the case. So when so we the, took over- it it, Yeah, this is, this is not good. This is not good. This doesn't happen very often in, in patent cases or cases generally uh that a preliminary injunction is issued because you have to of course persuade the course that there's irreparable harm that there's a likelihood of success on the merits that the balance of hardship favors a preliminary injunction and that a preliminary injunction is in the public interest so the court found all those things against bgi and in favor of Illumina, and at that point you take over the case <laughs> Yeah. And you know what? It's even worse. Not only was there a preliminary injunction, but those five patents had been litigated like two or three times before, like had gone through IPRs, which are a procedure in the patent office. They had been affirmed in the federal circuit. Another judge in the Northern District of California had issued a preliminary injunction years before on the same patents. And that company went out of business. So we had all that to deal with. All right, so you take the case and tell us. I mean, obviously, we know the we know how all this ended up with a, a happy ending. Um, but maybe give us some insight as to how this case was prosecuted pre-trial and and how you achieved the result that you that you did. So let me just start with the one in California, which is not the three hundred thirty-eight thirty-three million dollar verdict. But really, it is a tale of two cases and kind of a lot of the stuff that we learned from that case, we were able to apply and tweak and really just blow them out of the water on the second case. The one in California where we were basically a defendant against five patents that had been found valid and infringed and people had been enjoined on them before. Other people working on the case, Margaret and actually one of our other partners, Ann Toker, during kind of the investigation, noticed that the whole synthesis methodology, like all the chemistry that Illumina claimed that they had invented, had actually been copied from somebody else. Uh, this, not obscure, but this Russian publication from like 15 years before. It had been disclosed to the patent office, but no one actually, it, it, because the results were similar, but no one actually had dug in on the real chemistry until like Margaret and Anne dug in and found out that it had literally been copied. So we really started pounding on that uh, pre-trial, like in all the depositions. And I think we scared the heck out of the inventors and Illumina on that because um, our story was really good. Let me ask Margaret, how do you come across this uh, Russian chemistry, this uh, research that had already been done? 
and start digging into it. So this was a while ago, but from what I do remember, we reviewed the lab notebooks for the inventors and noticed this one tiny reference in um, in one of the lab notebooks to a citation. And this, this story sort of came out during deposition that this was a relevant reference that they they relied on to develop the synthesis chemistry that no one, no one had known about. Just so folks understand, the notebooks you're referring to are the notebooks of the inventors on the Illumina patents. The way Illumina acquired this chemistry is they acquired a company called Selexa that was based in the UK. And that's where all the in, these inventors came from and the lab notebooks. And, and you know, one of, one of the things that was kind of like the flashing light bulb, as I recall it, to the people that were reviewing the notebooks, the experiment seemed to work almost immediately. And that never happens in science. Like, it doesn't work immediately unless you've copied it from someone. So that was kind of a clue that something was awry. Well, when you say cop, what does copied mean in this context? So like the chemistry, think of like as a recipe for making a cake, uh, the chemistry to get to this thing that they were going to use, which was the secret sauce. And, you know, there are different ways to start from a bunch of uh, individual chemical ingredients and get to an end product. So there's a number of different pathways, but the pathway they used was just, it was too similar to be mere coincidence. From a patent law perspective, Margaret, what's the significance of that? Is this what you call prior art or does this come under some head other heading? Yeah, it's uh, it's prior art and it raises the specter of what's uh, known as inequitable conduct because um, someone who's trying to get a patent, they have a duty of candor in front of the patent office. And so you have to tell them all of the thing, all of the prior art that you know of that's relevant to your purported invention. And by not providing it to the patent office, that, you know, that raises some serious red flags about whether or not you do deserve that patent. Well, I, I, th I thought I heard David say that this actually was cited to the patent office. And, it, it, you know, if something's cited to the patent office, and look, I'm not a patent lawyer, but I my understanding is if it's cited to the patent office, and the patent office says, okay, you did that, fine, we've looked at this, and here's your patent, then that's kind of the patent office's blessing that at least their determination, this isn't invalidating prior art. That, in fact, is true, and that is kind of the way it, it, it happened. We had another piece of prior art where we found this obscure reference in the notebooks too, and combined with this Russian one, uh, we made a, an inequitable conduct argument on. But, you know, we thought we, we would have a great story anyway to present to the jury, which was even aside from inequitable conduct, how can you claim to be the inventors if you literally copied like the way that you got to this thing from some something else and claim that you didn't know about it? So that was their story. They did disclose it, but the inventor said, oh, somebody found it later on, and that's why it got disclosed. So we thought we were in great shape until pre-trial. And that's when things kind of, you know, some of the wheels fell off, at least from our the way we were planning on trying the case. So, what, Margaret, what happened? Well, part of it is that this this invention story that, you know, the, the flip side that, you know, maybe they like they didn't actually invent this chemistry. We wanted to tell it at trial is pretty key, but a lot of it was unfortunately ex excluded at before trial. Like in pre in like Daubert motions or, or motions in limine? Yes, motions in limine. Motions in limine. Now, we didn't think the rulings were correct. And the, the, the reasoning of the judge was that, oh, this all goes to the 
quote, what's called the manner of invention. Under section 103 of the patent statute, there's something that says, the way that you come up with something does not negate the value of the invention. And historically, if you took it back to the Patent Act when it was written, um, you know, a lot of people used to think that for something to be inventive, you had this spark of genius. Like think of Ben Franklin flying his kite and like getting hit by lightning and, and saying, aha. Congress decided you didn't need a spark of genius. So we think that they put that little thing in there that says the manner in which you come to the invention is, does not negate it. But the judge latched onto that and said, well, this all goes to the manner in which they came up with the invention and I don't want to let it in. So he kept that all out. At the same time, on the flip side, he kind of let a lot of stuff in for them that really shouldn't have come in, which changed our story as well. Do you remember all that, Margaret, all the decisions and the IPR stuff? Yeah, so one thing we tried really hard to keep out was these prior IPR decisions where, you know, the, the PTAB had found that these patents that Illumina was asserting, that the PTAB had found them to be valid. And you could understand why we want to keep them out, but a jury hearing, oh, well, you know, the Patent and Trademark Office doubly blessed these patents. Um, that, that seems like it would be fairly prejudicial to the jury um, when we're trying to invalidate these patents. And uh, so we tried, we tried to keep out the IPR decisions, but um, unfortunately the judge disagreed and uh, allowed Illumina to present this, this story that nine judges, or I, I forget the exact phrasing that was used, but nine judges had, um, had affirmed these patents already. Well, that sounds pretty compelling to me. <laughs> I mean, so how did you, how did you turn things around? So, you know, we're presented with this, what do we do? Yeah, basically, we gave the jury the story that, yeah, nine judges, but it was all on paper. Like, no one had ever heard any witnesses testify. And one of the things that was in our favor, even though we couldn't bring in the copying story, is we freaked Illumina out so much by pounding on their inventors and having all these inconsistencies in their story. They decided not to bring, they had nine inventors. They didn't even bring one of them to the trial. When you say you pounded on, in, in depositions. I in assume. depositions, yeah. Mm -hmm. So they didn't have a single inventor. And, you know, we had the, the guy of the husband, we brought the husband and wife who were basically the advanced research team who came up with our product that we were using. They were on the stand. Um, and we, we just were able to tell a story with real fact witnesses, whereas they, it was almost all experts on their side. So they didn't really have any fact witnesses. And we definitely pointed to the absence of their inventors. And then, I mean, I think the other thing that really turned things in our favor, and it wasn't a complete win, it was a partial win, but it really, from a practical standpoint, was a complete win. Our experts were just so much better. Um, we didn't go out on a limb with them, and they were, you know, they, I think at the end of the day, the jury really believed our experts and did not believe theirs. And I, I can give you a couple little stories about that, but actually in the second case, they're even more interesting than the little side stories, but uh, I think that's what did it. How long was the trial? The trial was a full five days, but the jury deliberations were even longer. <laughs> <laughs> that doesn't happen often. Uh, so we went to the jury shortly before Thanksgiving and we thought we'd be done before Thanksgiving, but they continued going and they weren't done until after the holiday. And, and, and without giving away one of our trade secrets, picking the jury, was really key. We, and you know, we used somebody to help us, 
but finding the right people who, especially after we got kind of trashed in the pretrial, who would latch on to just like the facts, you know, and really analyze the facts was really a key feature. Well, I, I assume you had to be concerned about potential prejudice uh, against Chinese people about China and skepticism about the inventiveness of uh, Chinese businesses. And I assume that the Illumina tried to exploit that during the trial. So two things, you know, how do you deal with in picking jurors, uh, trying to uh, sort out bias? And did the Illumina, in fact, during the trial, try to exploit that? So I'll deal with the picking the juror, Margaret, and then why don't you, you can talk about a couple of Illumina's attempts to exploit, you know, the xenophobia. You know, one of the things we were somewhat lucky, we were in the Northern District of California, which has a lot of Chinese Americans. But one of the things that we did was we kind of baited Illumina. Um, we in, This judge actually allowed us a voir dire uh, of the jurors uh, about 15 or 20 minutes, which a lot of federal judges don't allow you to do. And we ended up getting, you know, a, a, a pretty high level educated jury, which I think helped us deal with their attempts at injecting bias, you know, xenophobic type things into the into the argument. But Margaret, do you remember some of the, the things like the chairman, you know, what? Uh... One, one of Illumina's key witnesses um, for their case was Dr. Uh, Wong. He is the chair of BGI, but um, Illumina's counsel insisted on referring to him as Chairman Wang even though nobody at the company ever refers to him by that title, they only call him doctor. And just calling to, you know, it's just referring to Chairman Mao, we, we argued, but um, Illumina got to keep referring to him as Chairman Wang. And not only that, Illumina played deposition testimony from various Chinese language speaking witnesses, including Dr. Wang, um, just to continue highlighting, oh, these are you know these are Chinese copyists. Another thing that we did to sort of combat that is we brought witnesses who were um, ethnically Chinese, but these are U.S.-based employees. They're um, folks who may have been born in China, but they came to the U.S. They're U.S. citizens, and they explained their work at CGI and showed that they, you know, they're inventors and innovators and um, and helped to tell the story that this is not a Chinese company, that's, that is a bunch of copyists. And, you know, it worked. But long story short on this first case, we were we were up against five patents. Our kind of our general theme had gotten sidetracked and we knew it was going to be a tough road to, to knock out all five because Actually, when we took over the case, we didn't have any non-infringement defenses. <laughs> All we had was invalidity. Um, so what, and, and, you know, just from a business standpoint, we talked to the client and they were really most concerned about being able to introduce their new product called Cool. Um, they didn't really care that much about the old product. And only two of the patents were asserted against this new product. And one of them was about to expire. And, and then the other one had a lot of life to it. So we decided we're just going to really focus on focus on knocking out that one that has a lot of life. If we knock that one out, we can bring in our new product. And long story short, we knocked that one out. Um, and we almost knocked out all the other ones. Um, 
And I say that because we had, we had an opportunity to speak to the juror and it was very, it was very enlightening and we learned a lot that we applied to the second case. And I mean, if you want, I can just give you a synopsis of the, the discussions with the jurors, if, if you think that's helpful, John. Yeah, so let's first tell us what was the result, the verdict, and then what you learned from talking to the jurors afterwards. Sure, so the verdict, there were five patents. We knocked out the flagship patent the second one that was applied against our new product we did not we did not tarnish at all we didn't knock that one out there was a third patent where we knocked out the first the broadest claim and then two of the other patents um just remained so and but we were found to infringe because we didn't have any non-infringement defenses um but we knocked out the major one so again from our standpoint it was a total it was not a total win but it was a win because we got what we wanted to do we knew we could bring our product into the US but we went to talk to the to the jurors and they actually were quite willing to talk to us for quite a while and what we found out was that actually they were evenly split and they were really fighting um, it was like i think we had seven jurors at the end a couple got excused and it was 3-3 like they were, they were locked. Um, half of them wanted to invalidate all the patents. Half of them didn't want to, only wanted to invalidate the one. Um, and, you know, at the end of the day, they said they agreed that, you know, that fourth person who was kind of the swing vote, uh, they'd go with that one. And that person just couldn't get over the fact that all these prior tribunals had, had found the patents valid. Um, so that was kind of where it ended. But what they told us was, look, we really liked the way that you guys presented the case. We couldn't stand all of that, you know, that the shenanigans with the, you know, the xenophobia and trying to like play games, you know, insinuating that just because somebody's ethnically a certain, you know, certain way, that means they're, you know, not being honest, blah, blah. They also thought the other side just wasted a lot of time uh, doing irrelevant stuff. And they really thought our experts were totally believable. So we kind of like, we had that in our bag. And it was funny because when we interviewed the, the jurors, we kind of split it up. I told all the, 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 young, the young attorneys, I want you to talk to the jurors when they first come out, like up, you know, upstairs, our courtroom was upstairs. And then we had a separate group that we talked to them downstairs. But when our attorneys talked to them, they were right next to the Illumina attorneys. And, as I recall, like the Illumina attorneys were like, wasn't my cross-examination of so-and-so great? That's how that person <laughs> talked to the jurors and they were like, no, it really wasn't that good. Um, so, you know, it's just kind of like a different way of- Little, little tone deaf, it sounds like. Yeah. Right, well, let's talk about the second case. Now, I think you told that that was, uh, that's in Delaware and that's where you got this incredible uh, $333 million verdict tell us about that case what was at issue bgi was the plaintiff in that one right so we were we started the case as a plaintiff we asserted two patents but then illumina being illumina thinking that no one can touch them counterclaimed with three of their own patents so you know they had more than we did actually going into the trial we were allotted two full weeks for trial which is a lot for a patent case um i don't know if all the listeners know but you know, even though the stakes are usually very high in patent cases, you're what we call on the clock. Um, it's kind of like playing speed chess. You have a, a lot in number of hours. Um, yeah, just just so 
folks listening who uh, may not appreciate this, just so they know, it's not uncommon at all for judges to give each side a certain number of hours to try the case. And and every time uh, you're putting on a witness or you're talking or you're cross-examining, that's running against your time. You, know, you are on the clock. So we were allotted, I think, 22 or 23 hours. And we made the decision that we were going to use most of our time on our patent. We didn't think the, we thought we had a design around for the Illumina patents. We didn't really care about them. So that was, that was our, our, our mindset going in. We're going to spend the majority of our, the time on our patents. We'll talk about the Illumina patents a little bit. Um, and just, you know, just to tell you what they're about, our patents were about a, basically a method that increased the speed for sequencing that Illumina was using. Their patents were about using vitamin C. I mean, the same stuff you buy in the, you know, the supplement at Walgreens, when you put that in DNA, it helps preserve it. And like in opening arguments, we spent literally five minutes on their patents and said, these are just, they were just asserted as retaliation. And that's mm. the total amount of time we spent in opening on it. Did they challenge both infringement and validity of the BGI patents? Oh, yes, definitely. I mean, I, I think they put a lot of eggs in the um, validity basket. And, and also, this is important to Illumina's image to say that they're the, they're the innovators in the sequencing space. So they wanted to have someone say, well, no, we're not. This is not CGI's invention. This is we came up with this first. So on validity, they were attacking us, saying that they were the prior inventors and they brought um, this former, I think he's a VP of engineering at Illumina who claimed to be the first inventor of this important sequencing technology. And how did he fare on the stand? Oh, David crossed him. So I have to let David tell that story. Uh, he did not fare well. Um, <laughs> and, and, but actually a lot of it was based on uh, depositions that Margaret and one of our other partners took, Andrew Bramhall. So, you know, this guy, said that he ran a team of like 270 engineers. And, you know, one of the things that was against us was he in fact did have a document that predated us by about eight months that had a lot of the, a lot of the ideas of our patent in it. Um, but they didn't file for a patent for four years. So they had approved that from the date of that document until when they filed uh, in the patent office, they were what's called diligent. They were working on the invention. And the story they came up with was essentially everything in the company related to the invention. But when Margaret and um, Andrew Bramhall took depositions, none of the other people that worked at Illumina currently worked at Illumina really agreed with that. They kind of said stuff like, well, we didn't start working on this until 2009 or 2010, which is like two years after he said everyone was working on it. So there was a lot of inconsistency with that. So we were able to on cross, I was able to kind of like point out all those inconsistencies. Um, but the, the kind of the fun story on this was he no longer worked at Illumina, but they brought him in, you know, they flew him in. He came, came and testified as kind of this third party. But apparently he had some other plans for during the week of trial, the couple of weeks of trial. And Illumina insisted that he go on at a certain time. They try to, in fact, put him on during our case in chief, which actually would have been very disruptive. We wanted to tell our story, not have them interrupt us. So he went on afterwards, but they took an enormous amount of time with him 
And there were so many objections. I mean, this doesn't happen that frequently. You know, this is lawyer story, but you don't normally make a ton of objections when somebody's on there, especially hearsay, but we had to, to preserve the record for appeal as well, because he was testifying about work that he didn't do and documents he didn't write. And we actually had an evidentiary hearing before he even went on where he testified. And we tried to move things along. So like I could see what was happening, that it was taking a really long time. So to maybe kind of try to endear ourselves to the court, we started to agree, Your Honor, they don't have to lay a foundation for this document, for this document, we'll let it in. What ended up happening was at like, we got him on cross-examination at like 10 minutes after four and our day ended at 4.30. So we were 20 minutes in and we ended and, and the judge said, well, I'll see you tomorrow, Mr. So-and-so. At 10 o'clock that night, it was a Thursday. At 10 o'clock that night, we get an email from the other side, uh, copied the, or a letter that was copied to the judge that said, Mr. So-and-so has left the state uh, to attend his prior engagement. Oh, in the middle of his examination. In the middle of his examination. So we get into the courtroom on Friday morning and Illumina just says, well, Your Honor, it's not that big a deal. He'll be back on Monday. Let's just start with other witnesses. And obviously that was a big deal to us because they're not gonna remember like how are we gonna bring him back to you know his testimony? So we objected to that and the judge agreed. And so we went dark on that Friday. Um, I don't think that was a high moment for Illumina. Um, and and you know again. So when you jury, say you went, when you went dark, there was you just excused the jury and there was no trial that day because you were gonna pick it up when he came back when the witness came back on Monday. Right. And, I mean, there and, were other know, consequences too. They were dock time. So the judge counted that dark day against Illumina. And I think that forced them to severely trim back their, that, their presentation. That's a big chunk. That's yeah. a big chunk of time. And, and, you know, one other thing too, again, without giving away Tracy's exactly, but we had on the jury, we had an FBI, a current FBI field agent who's testified a lot of times. And we had a former police officer who was working with a, the public defender's office and I just, I just had to think that like a, an FBI agent, you know, when they got into jury deliberations might've thought, like explain to the other jurors, hey, that's really strange for somebody to leave in the middle of cross-examination, like leave the state. So well, that could so have the, helped us. The, the judge told the jury that this witness had left the state? She did. Yeah. And I think it was fair to do so. I mean, it was a rather, weird development I mean, so did, did the did the judge say uh that she was surprised did she, no, she did she communicate said, in some fashion that this wasn't exactly kosher no, she just said um you know mr so-and-so uh had to leave and he will not be back till monday and we'll pick up with him then oh. and she wouldn't allow us to comment obviously on why he was right. there um, but... all right so were, were there any other uh illumina experts or witnesses who didn't do particularly well in the stand yeah, there was there. So their main invalidity and non-infringement expert, I think, imploded their case or exploit exploded their case. And it was just it's just an example. Again, it was depositions that Margaret and Andrew took and it was really stupid stuff. And it just it totally blew up their case. He said he said things like so we were were relying to prove infringement on Illumina documents. And he was trying to play those down in deposition and say, oh, these are just marketing documents. They're not how it really works. And one statement he made, it was, oh, these documents were made for grandmas. So grandmas can understand the technology. 
which maybe he was trying to be funny and but you know it made no sense it was kind of like from the gender standpoint like i know all my my female partners and and the women associates like were appalled by that statement and it was just stupid so I, on cross-examination i think my first question to him was you know something like now you said these documents were made for grandmas right and he said yeah and i said well does that apply to grandpas too <laughs> um and, and 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 it was just so absurd because like somebody a grandma with no experience in sequencing why are they going to be looking at marketing materials for a machine that costs a million dollars what are they going to do put it in their basement and he actually said something stupid on cross like yeah i've seen a grandma buy a sequencer so i mean that guy just was <laughs> awful for them the other thing that he did was he played up his um his credentials like really stupid kind of like you know sophomoric mistakes and it you know the the side representing illumina they're very well-known attorneys and actually illumina i think margaret was it right illumina had not lost a case in like 10 12 years and they have a lot of trials yeah. so they know what they're doing but he had this thing on his on his cv that or actually on the powerpoints they put up on his experience that he had he had won the genius of genetics award and then he had something about national academy of sciences fellow and you know after he went up our experts pulled me aside and they're like genius of genetics that's like they looked him up it was from the the 92nd street y in new york the ymca or ymha whatever <laughs> um, and and he's not a fellow of the national academy of sciences so we crossed them on that it's like the genius of genetics from the why the place that you you know have the wire basket with a towel to go swimming that's what you're touting is like your big deal and you know he kind of said that and he just he just was awful for them this you know for for a case for a very sophisticated client and you, you said the law firm involved um i mean we won't name the firm uh is a well-known firm these seem like surprising boneheaded mistakes I assume that, as in the other case, they're really relying on experts, and a key expert on both validity and infringement. They put him up there in a position where he'd be so vulnerable on something as basic as his credentials. It was surprising. I mean, maybe I'll attribute a little bit on the on the grant made for grandma. Like maybe they never suspected I would do something like that on cross, but the credentials just seemed like, I mean, that was kind of boneheaded. Um, right. How long was this trial? This one was a full two weeks where I don't know. We actually didn't get a break between um, testimony and closing, really, did we? No, we did not. Yeah. We finished the day and then we went back to work on closing. How long was the jury out? They were this jury was only out for about two and a half to three hours. And let me just mention one other thing. So, we, you know, we presented our case and then Illumina did their case on the why we infringed on the vitamin C. And remember, I said, we decided we were gonna spend almost all our, our time on our case. We, we literally only put on 50 minutes of testimony. We crossed their, their inventor. Uh, we had one of our young associates cross their inventor. I think he asked them five questions, five or six questions. That was Andrew Narvaj, right, Margaret? Yep, and that was an expert, yep. And then we crossed their expert for about 20 minutes and we put on our expert for about 30 minutes. So we had a total of one hour that we spent on their patent. 
Jury was out for two and a half hours. They killed all of their patents. They killed all the Illumina patents. Found them invalid. Found them invalid. So I think that, you know, this whole thing that Illumina was doing, which was we're the great and we can do no wrong, really backfired on them. And it happened on the damages part too. So they actually used the same expert that they used in the first case, very well-known damages expert. We used a very well-known damages expert. And one of my other partners handled the damage part of the case, David Pearlson. But all they did was attack our guy. And when David, the other David, cross-examined their expert and said, well, okay, you say it's, that that's not the right amount. Well, what should the amount be? He wouldn't actually say. He just kept saying, well, you're wrong. He wasn't going to give an alternative number. He did not want to give an alternative number. And in fact, what Illumina did, you know, and again, I'm assuming there's a lot of lawyers here. You know, sometimes when people do closing, they take out the verdict form and they like fill it out in front of the jury. Um, different views on that. Um, it's not our style. But when he got to the damage number, the Illumina attorney wrote zero, which was a rather provocative thing to do. I mean, zero versus 333.8 million. Well, right. Didn't work out well for them. Right. And is the 333.8 that they awarded, is that what you asked for? To the penny. I, I think there's a couple more dollars in there, but we'll round it. <laughs> <laughs> Looking back on it, uh, obviously, this is a very important verdict. Has, I mean, has any Chinese company ever won an award that high in, in the U.S. before? You know, what we started to hear after the verdict was literally the Chinese press went nuts in China. You know, the state run media, all the press, it was everywhere. And we're like, why is this? I mean, it's a big deal, but like, why is it taken on this magnitude? And apparently this is the largest based on our research. I mean, it's hard to confirm completely, but based on our research and our clients research, it's the largest verdict that a Chinese company has ever gotten in a U.S. court. Amazing. I mean, but for COVID, I assume I, I certainly would encourage you to go over to China and do a victory lap. I think there would be a, a lot of Chinese companies that would be very interested in hearing how you achieve this result. I mean, has have you gotten inquiries from Chinese companies? Has this gotten some traction over there, uh, some reach outs? So what our client has told us is that he started getting, our the GC of our client said he started getting calls from Chinese, like, tons of people at Chinese companies saying, who were your lawyers? Um, we need to get in touch with them. Some contacts have been made. We have not, you know, we have not actually gone over to China because there is this, you know, you got to go into quarantine for 10 days and it's. Yeah. You don't, you don't want, them. you don't want to spend uh, three weeks in a three star or two star hotel on the fifth ring road around Beijing somewhere. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but we will follow through and actually we've been doing a lot of our people have been doing presentations and, you know, John, we have offices throughout Asia. We have a couple of offices. We have Shanghai and Hong Kong, right? Shanghai, Hong Kong, and uh, soon to have Beijing. Of course, we're in Tokyo as well. And and I know that our attorneys there have been getting a lot of uh, inquiries about the verdict and have been telling, you know, their their clients based there about it. So, you know, we've, we've gotten a lot of press about it and inquiries. Obviously, uh, you should be and are uh, very proud of this fantastic result that you got. It wasn't the end, just getting the jury verdict. We actually yeah. got our money. Uh, yeah, and that doesn't 
That rarely happens. Uh, why do you, why do you think that Illumina decided to just write the check? I mean, there's a lot of things they could have done, post trial motions, appeals, and that's usually what you see. Right. So the finding from the jury was that there was willful infringement. And in the patent world, when you have a finding of willful infringement, it gives the judge the option from an equitable standpoint of also increasing the damages award. Uh, the judge has the option to increase it by three times. And they actually put on, actually, I would say a, a non-existent willfulness defense. They were just, their defense was we were the first to invent it, but they didn't ever have anyone say like, well, we looked at the patent and we didn't think we infringed or we looked at the patent and we thought it was invalid. They didn't put on any evidence. So that was one big strike against them. And then, you know, the stuff with like the witness leaving the, leaving the state and some other things that just happened throughout the trial, we thought we were in a really good position to actually get a multiplier. And when you've got 333 million, you know, 1.3 or 1.4 is another is another big chunk of change. So, that's a that's a big number. And not only that, there's the ongoing damages because you know, as they're going to continue using this technology, they would have had to pay. So I think that was staring them in the yeah. face. And, and honestly, it happened quick when they came to you know when they came to us. The first number that they threw out was it was a big number. So we knew they were serious, and before trial. You know, we talked to them about settling and the numbers they threw out were like in the 15, $20 million kind of range. So. All right. Well, fabulous result. Congratulations. Thanks for participating in uh, Law Disrupted here today. We've been talking to David Bilsker and Margaret Shear about the case they brought on behalf of a Chinese company, BGI, against an American company, market-leading gene sequencing company, Illumina, where they won a $333 million verdict. You've been listening to Law Disrupted with me, John Quinn. You can sign up to receive an email when a new episode drops at our website, lawdisrupted.fm. If you enjoyed the show, please share a link on social media and follow at JBQ Law or at Quinn Emanuel. Thank you for tuning in. Well, wasn't that amazing? It was created and produced by Podcast Partners. They're really lovely people and rather good at all this podcasting guff. Find out more at podcastpartners.com.